chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then verses 36 to 43 of the same chapter. Now, last week we looked at the kingdom of God. And because it is, as, as I said, uh, it is a big subject, in the next few weeks we will be looking at some of the parables of the kingdom. And Jesus used these parables in order to teach us what the kingdom of God was like. Now, he used it both ways. One, is, one way was to teach and the other way, mysteriously, was to conceal. This morning we start with the parable of the wheat and the tares. It is filled with spiritual significance and truth. And we also have the added luxury that not all the parables have, that Jesus actually gives us an explanation of what it means. But despite his clear explanation or interpretation of its meaning, this parable is still often misinterpreted. Some see it as a parable of the church and its condition, but it's actually more about how the kingdom of God is present in the world while we await the final consummation. So first of all, we look at verses 24 to 28, sowing seeds versus sowing weeds. Sowing seeds versus sowing weeds. Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. So then Jesus gives his disciples and us an explanation of the meaning in verses 37 to 39. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. So Jesus Christ declares himself as the sower. His word is the good seed, the good news of the kingdom, the gospel that goes into the world. And so when people come to faith, they in turn, their people themselves, become the good seed that falls amongst the weed. Well, I'm mixing one parable with the other, aren't I? Because you see, he spreads these redeemed seed, true believers, in the field of the world. I'll explain that later. Through his grace, these Christians, you and I, begin to bear fruit. What type of fruit? 
Well, the Apostle Paul explained to us the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. And, and their presence, the believer's presence, our presence on earth is the reason why the kingdom of heaven is like the field of the world. God has deliberately planted us, think about that, on this world where he wants us to be. Now, going back to chapter 13 of Matthew, we of course have the well-known parable of the sower. This is the same chapter. But there, some of the seed, it's, it's, it's randomly spread And and some of the seed falls amongst the weed, verse 7. But here it is the other way around. Weed is not just naturally growing out of the ground, which is our experience as we observe everywhere. Weed just comes up. But here it has been deliberately planted amongst the good seed after the the, the workers went home to rest. So both, rather than just being spread about randomly, the owner of the field sends his servants to plant the seed, but then the enemy goes and plants his seed next to them. By, them, by the workers being asleep, it doesn't mean that they were, they were lazy or they took their ball off, you know, their eye off the ball, that they were neglectful? No. The fact is that the enemy was stealthy. And, and this is very much a, a deliberate act. And almost certainly what, what he went out to, to plant was bearded, what is known as bearded darnel, which is uh, very difficult to distinguish from wheat, especially when the plants are very young. The roots, and and more, what complicates things even more, is that the roots of the two plants will entangle themselves with one another. It is only after the the heads start to appear that you can tell which is which. So if you look at them, they're actually difficult to tell apart. They look identical to the wheat. This is the wheat before it's fully ripe, and then... There are the tears. So this parable speaks of the enemy, this, this dark menace as being the devil himself. Jesus tells us that. And for thousands of years he has been trying to destroy the true seed, the Christians, but he has not succeeded. We know the stories of the persecution of the church, the burning of the sacred texts of the Bible, the torture of believers and what they've gone through. And the church has not been destroyed. But since he cannot destroy the people of God, his church, What he does is he 
he plants those who look very similar. It's a clever strategy, right? Those who look very similar in their midst, amongst them, deliberately planted. We can call them counterfeit Christians. And wherever Christ sows a true Christian, he plants a Christian. Satan comes and sows, he plants a counterfeit one. A counterfeit one. And this, this is what the Apostle Paul spoke of. Paul spoke of being, in 2 Corinthians 11.26, he spoke of being in danger from false believers. Think about that one. In danger from false believers. These are the believers who, in Galatians 1, 6-9, are turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. It looks like the gospel, but it is different. Eventually, they gather around a counterfeit church and they name a pastor who will tickle their ears. The Apostle John, the Apostle of Love, (laughs) he actually calls them a synagogue of Satan. He doesn't mince his words. Revelation chapter 2 verse 9. It's clear then that no church or pulpit is a safe haven from the influence of the evil one. At this very moment, at this very moment, as the word of God goes forth into the world, there is also a toxic seed being deliberately sown at the same time. All around us we see this strange ambiguity. Ever since the fall, of course, the in Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall, there are no fields or gardens because of the curse where only grain and flowers grow. The weeds and thorns are also there. How, how does it reveal, how does it show itself in our experience? Well, let's look at science and technology and we see this. Compared, for example, compared to the last few centuries, uh, the advances in the last 100 years, if the last few thousand years of of human civilization have been like this, the last 100 years has has, has taken a a parabolic turn upwards in in discoveries. We have invented machines and, and harnessed energy. We have come up with vaccines and treatments to tackle crippling diseases. But with all the progress, man's heart and his inclination for evil has not changed. His his increasing knowledge as he studies God's creation, although many of them don't recognise it as, as, as God's creation, but some of them do, as he studies God's creation for good, there are those who 
have made tremendous progress, like I said, for good. At the same time, and parallel to that, alongside of that, there are those who are already thinking of using that same power for destruction. The same power that is used for x-ray can be used to bomb and destroy and kill. There are many examples like that. And it is used to destroy his fellow man, to destroy God's creation. Because he sets himself up, you see, in his pride. Notice at first that both of them, there is nothing noticeable about the tares and the wheat. There's no visible difference. But suddenly you discover, they discover that there's something terrible that is happening. Again, how does this look like in our experience? How many mothers and fathers have had the same experience? You have reared your children carefully, surrounded them with good, clean atmosphere and love and cherished them and prayer as they grew up, set the best example possible. And despite all this, something else begins to grow. And as parents you wonder, how did that get in there? Where did that influence come from? Where was it? And, 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 you, and you pull your hair out and you say, how did this happen? You know it because it's true. And it breaks your heart. And there's nothing you can do about it except pray. As we look around today, one of the biggest impacts has been on truth itself. You would think that truth is just truth. Two plus two is four. There should be no argument about that. Not today. We are in what is called a post-truth age. Post-truth is actually a word that's been introduced in the English Dictionary. There was a time when we relied on objective facts and figures. But nowadays they are taking a back seat. They are less important than emotions and feelings. Post-truth, for me, is a nice way to redefine what we used to call a big fat lie, basically. If it's not the truth, it's, it's a lie. It's not, it's not a half-truth. A half-truth is simply just something that is, is a lie. So, if the evidence fits our preferences and opinions, then all is well and good. 
If it doesn't, then the evidence is inadmissible or even offensive. We see this, I'm just giving you one example, we see this in the area of identity. Many in the West today believe that a person's gender is not determined by the fact of their biology, by the truth of their biology, by their DNA. But it is determined by their inner inner feelings. I wonder how many blokes are lining up to go to a gynaecologist. It's absurd, right? And, and, this is, and yet this is a classic with all of the advances, with all of the knowledge that we have been able to obtain. Apparently, this is no longer admissible. This is the, this is the post-truth mindset. But surely, slowly and surely, we're finding out just how destructive it can be and the, the inconsistencies that it produces in the area of sports and other fields of endeavour. In a way, society is sowing the seeds of its own destruction. And you can only live a contradiction for so long. But in this parable, Jesus tells us that the devil is the one actually doing this sowing. Very deliberately, very deliberately, in our education system, in our halls of academia, universities and studies, planting the seed, doing the sowing. What are we to do about it? Well, in verses 28 to 30, we have the weeding versus the leaving the weeding, weeding versus the leaving. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What should be done? We understand the angry reactions of the servants. This is their labour that has been spoiled. They, they, they want to go out and immediately just rip out the weeds, get rid of them. They have laboured hard and... and and hate to see their efforts being deliberately sabotaged. So here we have the master and the servants discussing, maybe even arguing about what should be the solution to this problem. What will it be? What should be done? It's a question that fills our screens and our media all the time. The media point the finger at the police. The police point the finger at the courts. The courts point the finger at the politicians who make the laws. 
So they make more laws and increase the severity of the punishments. In some cases, in some cases we redefine evil. So what used to be known as evil is no longer evil. Let's just get rid of the police altogether because they're the ones causing the problem. That's not going to work. All of this in our attempt to, to deal with evil. On the one hand, to get, to get rid of it, or in other words, to it's not so bad, just to redefine it and, and massage it or assuage its effects and say, well, it's not so bad. The Bible does tell us that the role of authorities and governments and authorities and leaders is to uphold the law and to punish the wrongdoer. That is there. It's clearly stated in Scripture. This is a divinely, authorities have a divinely delegated authority because we need law and order in a fallen world. Nevertheless, the issue of the human heart remains. So it seems a little bit strange, doesn't it, that the Lord will stifle the zeal of his servants by saying to them, hands off, let both grow together until the harvest. So what Jesus is proposing is is actually pretty radical. And and before the days of, of herbicides, uh, many farmers, when they see that their, their crop is spoiled, they will just simply open the gates and let the, the cows and the sheep go in and get a feed, right? This is something that they might do. Or others will just go and plough under the crop and start over again. So what... All this is... All this is, is rather than try, because to separate the weeds from the wheat is, is, is quite cumbersome. It's a lot of work. Just to start over again, is, it's, it seems a lot easier, doesn't it? So why did Jesus say this? Well, first of all, it's impossible to exterminate evil by our own efforts. We cannot change the field of the world as it is. History is littered with uprisings and revolutions which start with high ideals but end up in abject failure and worse than the original condition. In Russia they had the Bolshevik revolution where they kicked out the monarchy of the Tsar, his family, in 1917, And within a couple of years, they realised that the system under the Tsar, as as bad as it might have been, it was like a walk in the park compared to what the Bolsheviks and the communists introduced. And it lasted for decades. You should read some of the stuff that they did to their fellow people. This is because evil, you see, if evil was out there, you you could say, let's just go and destroy it and tackle it. But you see, evil is in here. 
this is not some human resistance that you must break down. This is the power of the, the great adversary at work. You are not fighting against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. The ruler of this world. If, if our own power were of any use, then the cross would not be necessary. All we would need is good counselling. Good moral teaching, right? Just a good moral appeal. Just read a few good books and you'll be fine. But you see, you won't do why we needed Jesus. That's why we needed the cross. As for the rest, we have to wait for the surprises of the last judgment. Until then, let God's sun shine on the just and the unjust. Let God's clouds drop their rain on the good and the evil. And both of them will grow together, both the tares and the wheat. Secondly, Jesus' concern is that none of the good harvest be lost. And that is where we, we began to get a, a higher understanding of the story here, of the parable. Jesus once rebuked his disciples who were a little bit upset because of the bad receptions that they received from the Hostile Samaritans, that's in Luke chapter 9. They went there with all their good intentions, the Samaritans just didn't, you know, receive them. And on that occasion, he, rather than curse the Samaritans, he actually has a, a harsh word to his disciples. He turned to them and he said, verses 51 to 56 of Luke chapter 9, he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So we would therefore be spoiling God's plan of salvation if we were to organise this huge organisation, you know, organise a huge operation cleanup. It's easy, isn't it, to separate humanity into two groups, them and us, the good and the bad. In reality, life is not like that, is it? Most of us are both good and bad, wheat and seeds. And some who started good went bad and then they repent and become good again, right? So what would happen? There will be no chance for grace to work for repentance to do its work, for, for God, for the Holy Spirit. There'll be no chance for the prodigals out there, right? Jesus was right. We do not know what kind of spirit we are of. In light of the Gospel... We have to reject this way of looking at people. The world is a field where both good and bad seed have been sown. To put it another way, 
We don't know what wheat has been sown where. And, and there could be wheat even in the most weed-filled garden, a garden that looks an absolute mess, an absolute disaster, might actually have some good fruit in it, good wheat. For now, Jesus is not concerned for separating the wheat from the weeds, but rather that none of the good wheat be lost. This would be like robbing people of the chance to hear the word, to take it to heart. This is a time of God's patience, isn't it? Thirdly, the servants are incapable of carrying out any proper separation of grain and weeds. To rip out the weeds is almost impossible from a farmer's point of view as you could be destroying the wheat as well. Remember how we said that the, the roots are sort of intertwined one with the other. Even though they look so much alike, in their zeal for weeding out the tares, they could also root out the wheat. Because we know that wheat doesn't have very deep roots, the other will also come up. Let's be honest. I mean, the, the world is... Filled with so-called Christians whose ungodly actions actually bring reproach to the name of Christ and his church. And while it is our duty to call them out, we are not to pursue them in an effort to destroy them. For one thing, we, we don't know if immature and innocent believers might be injured by our efforts in the whole process. Furthermore, one has only to look at historical examples such as the uh, example of the Spanish Inquisition and then we're not just going to blame the Catholics but the Protestants didn't behave too well either. I mean the Protestants themselves had, had their own sort of Inquisition where they went after the heretics and, and others during the Protestant Reformation. To see the results of men taking it upon themselves to the responsibility of separating believers, true believers from the false is, yeah, riddled with, with problems. So this task is rightfully reserved for God and his angels. Instead of requiring these false believers to be rooted out of the world, Christ allows them to remain until his return. At that time, God's angels will separate the true from the false believers. Now, this does not mean we should not worry about the purity of the church, that we should just Go and let God, right? Just let everything go. With wisdom we must call out the devil's work when he places false believers and teachers in the world to lead many astray. We should call them out. 
Jesus teaching in this very gospel in, in chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, tells us how to, how to deal with unrepentant sinners within the church. After a process of coming together and, and trying to bring them to repentance, if they remain unrepentant, they are to be put out of the fellowship and treated as unbelievers. This is what it says. We must deal with immorality and, and must denounce false teaching. We must deal with those who create disunity to the church and dishonour God. The Apostle Paul spoke about this in his epistles. Now we come to our last point, immediate versus delayed justice. Immediate versus delayed justice, verses 39 to 43. The harvest is the end of the age. This is Jesus' explanation of the parable. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now in this regard, I have to disagree with one of the, the best statesmen, um, I think, that England has ever produced. And that was the, the former Prime Minister, William Gladstone. He once said... Um, justice delayed is justice denied, he said. Now, it appears that the Scriptures do not agree with Mr Gladstone on this regard because it was the Apostle Paul who told the Christians in Rome who were increasingly, these Christians in Rome, were increasingly feeling the heat. And this is what he says to them in Romans twelve nineteen. This is what he said. He said, do not take revenge my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Simply look around and see how Christianity is targeted today. And it's not just today, it's been through history. The last 2,000 years is a witness to that, isn't it? And I say true Christianity because um, many even so-called Christians and pastors and churches have already folded and given in to the, the woke spirit of the age. Increasingly, the true wheat and the true sheep will feel the heat. The temperature is going to turn up more and more. Don't act surprised. Jesus told us about this. Be prepared. You might have noticed that many of Jesus' parables end this way with, with a day of reckoning. The day of the Lord. 
day of judgment. And the last judgment will be full of surprises. The separation of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the weeds. It will be made in a, in a different way from which we, even us, permit ourselves to imagine. For God is more merciful than we and God is more strict than we are. More knowing than we are. And on the day of the Lord Jesus, the King will come with his crown. He will also come with his sickle. But by now, one thing should be clear in this parable is that It doesn't presuppose a utopian, wonderful world of peace and harmony, of love and harmony all around us. Just, you know, like the song by John Lennon, imagine. Rather, Jesus spoke of a world of struggle and conflict. His message is that God is indeed living and acting and moving in this world. He has not abdicated his throne. God is active even if we do not see it. He is continuing to sow his seed. Yes, it is the gospel, but it's you and me. And and, and I picture myself, remember in, in Genesis, where God is about to destroy a city, Sodom and Gomorrah, and there is Abraham interceding for that city. What if there were 50? What if there were 40? What if there were 30? God said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy the city. He has his people there, you see. But if there were only 10, but there weren't even 10, that's the problem. So we... We, you and me, we are the salt, we are the light in the darkness, we are the preservers of this, of this society. That people don't recognise that, but we are. God has planted us. This time, in this place, this generation. Continue to carry on with our lives much, much as we are able to and do not Do not fret over the presence of evil. Marry, bear children, build homes, work, learn, enjoy life as much as you are able. Be strong in the faith, hope and assurance that God gives us. His justice, his goodness and the peace that we all seek will one day prevail upon the earth. That is his promise. Our faithful discipleship, our witness will will, will stand out. We will stand out. We will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. That is his promise. May he give us the the, the grace, the patience of the long view rather than the immediate solutions. The the calmness 
to, to live confidently in his name until that day when, again, I love that picture, we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. What a glorious picture, right? That is the hope. That is the promise. Because God is with us. Amen.